0: and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale. Four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at AMAC, AMAC.US slash Just News. That's AMAC.US forward Just News. Hello, America. It's John Solomon, and this is my first edition of my new podcast, John Solomon Reports. Thanks for joining me. I'm really excited about this new project. It's part of a larger effort that I've launched called JustTheNews.com, where we're going to have a bunch of reporters, people like David Brody, Cheryl Atkinson, myself, uh, big names in journalism that are committed to just giving you facts and letting you make up your own mind. That's what this podcast is about. That's what this new website that I'm going to launch in the next month is about it's about trusting you to make up your own mind and for us as reporters to just give you the facts that's something that doesn't go on often enough in journalism today too many of reporters are out there trying to give you their opinion or to submit opinion speculation political spin and masquerade it as a were fact and so uh, i hope you tune in every Tuesday and Thursday, we'll be doing this podcast. We're going to have big interviews. We're going to break some big stories, and we're going to talk to people who are really in the know, not just people that are sent out with talking points and spin jobs to try to deceive the American public. So um, a couple rules of the road as we get started here. Like I said, we're going to broadcast every Tuesday and Thursday. The podcast will be available at 3 o'clock Eastern time each of those days. Uh, when the newsroom gets started fully, uh, com. I'll have a lot of my colleagues involved with this podcast. I think you want to hear from great reporters, and uh, I'm really looking forward to um, having them on my show. We'll always try to have uh, a big uh, newsmaker, somebody in the know, somebody that's involved in what's going on in Washington, around the world, on the campaign, and and have an honest conversation. That's what this is about. Uh, third, I promise you, I'm not going to give you any opinion, no spin, I'm going to try to stick to the facts, facts you might not have heard of before or facts that aren't being talked about enough. But my job here is not to be a pontificator. I want to just be a reporter and give you facts so you can make up your mind, go to the water cooler, go to the dinner table uh, and talk to folks around you and be able to be more informed than some of the things you get in the media today. So that's what this is really about. Uh, We're not going to dramatize. We're not going to make up stuff. We're not going to opinionate. Uh, You got enough of that in the mainstream media already. This is all about the facts. So when you tune into John Solomon Reports, I hope you'll get something that's a buffet of facts and nothing more than that. Um, Now, we're going to go to commercial break in a second. Before we do, I want to tell you what we're going to try to accomplish today. First off, I've got to respond to this guy, Lev Parnas. You know, this fellow that's out on TV on Rachel Maddow, CNN. Uh, Now, I had a lot to do with him. I know who he is. I I dealt with him as a journalist, but the story that's out there in the mainstream media is not accurate, and I'm going to give you the real facts about what really happened between Lev Parnas, myself, Rudy Giuliani, and myself. We're going to just give you honest truth here. And uh, another thing I want to do is uh, I hope you'll like this. This is a a segment I want to try to do as often as possible. There are so many stories that get a little mentioned, but they're so much more important. I call them underreported stories. Every so often, we'll do a little segment on stories that are underreported that really have a bigger importance to the news of the day. And I got a couple of those for you today, stories that haven't gotten enough attention, but that are really important, I think, uh, uh, to understanding what's going on in Washington. So let me start with one. This is a story that broke over the last... A few uh, days, and it hasn't gotten the sort of media attention. A little mention on foxnews.com, but nothing else. But I think it goes to a very important issue. Democrats say uh, there is no deep state in government, and of course, uh, people who come forward and make allegations against President Trump are whistleblowers in the Democrats' minds. And then Republicans say these bureaucrats who raise questions about President Trump are nothing more than critics, a political machine that they like to call the deep state. Well, uh, that debate's not going to be settled anytime soon. But there was a very important um, article that came out, a very important prosecution that just finished up in New York City. And uh, it uh, it revealed that a Treasury Department official, now a former Treasury Department official, had illegally downloaded what are known as suspicious financial Transactions. These are reports that our allies send to our Treasury Department saying, we think something suspicious is going on here. It's a very secret system. It's des- designed to encourage cooperation by our allies. And yet we had a Treasury Department person who was downloading them and leaking them, according to prosecutors, to the BuzzFeed news organization. Yep, that's the same BuzzFeed that gave us the Christopher Steele dossier. So this is really interesting because these are the sort of things that almost never get uh, public. And the concern here, of course, is that if an ally was cooperating and then all of a sudden what the information they were sending us got leaked, maybe that ally would be less likely to alert the U.S. Treasury Department to the next terrorism or counterintelligence or fraud threat that they had detected in the banking system. So a real issue here. But Natalie Edwards 41-year-old woman who worked for the Treasury Department. She pled guilty about a week ago in Manhattan Federal Court. Uh, It's a conspiracy charge, um, and uh, basically she admitted that while she was working for FinCEN, that's the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, very important part of our counterterrorism, counterintelligence, fraud detection uh, uh, oversight system in the banking world, Uh, that she was, beginning in October 17, and for almost a year, she was getting these banking reports, taking them, and then leaking them in some cases to BuzzFeed. And who was she leaking about? Well, how about President Trump's old campaign chairman, Paul Manafort? That was one of the persons whose suspicious financial transaction reports she was downloading and leaking, as were another uh, top official for the president, uh, Rick Gates. And then Maria Bettina, remember her, the uh, Russian woman who uh, pled guilty to being an unregistered agent in Russia and had many contacts with Republicans? Well, that's the sort of stuff that this bureaucrat was downloading and leaking. And um, you make your own mind up, but it sure looks like, from the facts here, that she was interested in um, uh, harming Donald Trump or having a political motive. And that's not my words. That is actually the words of her lawyer when she – Came out of the courtroom, her lawyer said uh, it appears she had some form of a, a subjective motivation, a political motivation. I think he said right here probably of the view that she was more politically motivated than she was for some conception like the good of our republic. That's what he said about what the case and the charges sort of suggested here. So you have a politically motivated person, they're leaking. And they leak very sensitive data, data that normally is kept confidential so that our allies can help us in the war against terror, war against counterintelligence threats, the war against bank fraud. Uh, and this woman is now uh, facing sentencing. The prosecutors have recommended no prison time, but it'll be interesting to see what the judge does. But when we look at this issue, deep state, no deep state, uh, this is a sort of um, case that raises a real question. And we've seen it time and again over the last few years. Uh, Since President Trump has been uh, president in the White House, there have been numerous cases where senior officials or others in government have been caught leaking. Uh, We've got uh, James Comey leaking his memos of those private conversations with the president uh, about Russia. We've got Andy McCabe under investigation for leaking. We saw a media leak strategy all discussed in the Pete Stroke, Lisa Page documents. And my understanding is the Justice Department Inspector General, Michael Horowitz is wrapping up another investigation now that he finished Russiagate, uh, looking into the culture of leaking at the FBI. But it's these sort of cases, like uh, uh, Natalie Edwards here in uh, New York City, that give the Republicans some fodder for claiming there's a deep state. And for Democrats, I'm sure they're going to portray Natalie Edwards just like they portrayed the whistleblower in the Ukraine case and some of Pete Stroke and, and others as whistleblowers, and uh, that debate is going to go on, but this case in New York deserved a lot more attention than it got. All right, one more uh, underreported story or underreported fact. Um, As we get into this impeachment trial, one of the big questions is, why was the president pressuring uh, Ukraine, or the people around him, Rudy Giuliani at least, um, Mm -hmm. to try to get Ukraine's new president, President Zelensky, to announce a criminal investigation of Burisma Holdings. That's the gas firm that hired Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, paid him millions of dollars to his firm in 2014, 15, 16, and 17. Um, And so we know from the evidence that's out there now that at least Rudy Giuliani and some of his allies were pressing for Ukraine to announce an investigation and that the president himself made mention of this in the call with President Zelensky. But I've got a fact that no one is really focusing on. And I think the jurors in this case, the senators, are going to have to reconcile this fact. And that is, it was in July when the president first raised this question of the Brisma investigation. However, five months before that, in February 2019, before there was any pressure, before there was any discussion, Ukrainian authorities themselves decided to reopen the Brisma case. And why is that? Well, there was a uh, entity that actually Joe Biden helped create when he was vice president. It was called National, the National Anti Corruption uh, Bureau, NABU, as it is. We I'd call it the Anti Corruption FBI of Ukraine. It was formed by the with the help of the U.S. government during the Obama years in 2015, while Joe Biden was overseeing Ukraine policy. And in February of 2019, it got a hold of new evidence, bank records, and transactions of Burisma, and it recommended. That the case be reopened. Now, keep in mind, Burisma had been under investigation in 2014, right after it came up under investigation in Ukraine for various allegations, corruption, money laundering, et cetera. Uh, the company hired Hunter Biden, an American, the son of the vice president, the son of the vice president overseeing Ukraine's uh, U.S. policy. And um, they hired him and put him on the board. And then uh, shortly a couple years later, that case got settled. Those original investigations got dropped, and Brisma walked away by paying a small fine, I think about five or six million dollars in American dollars uh, for some tax violations. But all the other allegations, money, laundering, corruption, et cetera, were dropped. Now, before all that happened, we know our own state department, people like George Kent, the charged affair at the time, testified he believed that um, Burisma had a corrupt reputation, in fact, so much so that when Burisma tried to do business with the State Department in 2016, while Hunter Biden was on that board, um, he stopped a project between the two sides. And uh, the reason he said is because he was worried about USAID, the foreign funding arm of the State Department, being in business with a company like Burisma that had these allegations of corruption swirling over the top of it. So uh, State Department officials were concerned about it. State Department officials also testified they believed that when Hunter Biden joined the board, it created the appearance of a conflict of, of interest for Joe Biden. That means our own State Department, not Republicans, but State Department officials serving in the Obama administration under Joe Biden on Ukraine policy saw way back in 2015-16 the potential of a conflict of interest because Hunter Biden was on one of the largest natural gas company boards in Ukraine, and his father was overseeing policy and, and, and for Ukraine and the United States, and uh, we, this concern became more heightened. When in February of 2016, right as these investigations in Ukraine were ramping up and the jeopardy to Brisma was more serious, that um, Brisma's American lawyers, they hired a group of American lawyers, they went to the State Department and they asked the State Department, according to documents that I got under a FOIA, to help make these corruption allegations go away. And when they did so, when they sent their email or when they made their contacts, the Documents that the State Department released show they claim the reason the State Department should make these allegations against Burisma go away was because Hunter Biden was sitting on the board. If you ever had a reason to see a conflict or a potential conflict of interest or an appearance of a conflict of interest, that email jumps out at me and it jumps out at many of the experts I talk to as the sort of politicking, family politicking, influence peddling that... uh, is the, uh, We try to stamp out when we have these ethics rules saying anyone in the United States government should step aside if they see the potential for an appearance of a conflict of interest. So inside the State Department, people saw that appearance of a conflict of interest. They knew that Burisma had these corruption allegations around it. Now, that case gets settled in 2016. Fast forward to 2019, new evidence surfaces, new bank records, new accounting records, new ledgers. In NABU, not exactly a Donald Trump organization, but actually one that was formed, uh, founded by Joe Biden back in 15, it recommends publicly that the case be reopened against Burisma in February of 2019. They recommend that the prosecutors in Ukraine file what is known as a notice of suspicion. We'd call it an indictment or a criminal information here in the United States. So a month later, the Ukrainian prosecutor's office, a deputy prosecutor general by the name of Kulik, does in fact open the investigation and file that notice of suspicion and put everybody in Ukraine on notice that the Ukrainian law enforcement is reopening the case against Burisma, uh, and specifically to look at money laundering issues and answer the question, was any of the money that was paid to Hunter Biden Uh, in any way improper or uh, money laundered or otherwise. That is what the official notice of suspicion talks about. Um, And so why is that important? That is three or four months before President Trump is uh, on tape suggesting uh, that Ukraine take a look at these corruption allegations in, in Burisma. But the media and the Democrats have spun this, right? They've said President Trump was trying to force an investigation. Here's the problem. The facts that I've just given you show that that case, that investigation was opened before President Trump made those comments to President Zelensky in the July 2019 phone call. Back in February and March, four or five months before, uh, the Ukrainian authorities on their own reopened the investigation based on new evidence. It was an organic reopening. In fact, it was reopened by an organization, a law enforcement organization that Joe Biden helped create. So uh, this is something that the senators are going to have to reconcile, right? You've got the Democrats saying President Trump was trying to force an investigation, but in fact, he couldn't have. The investigation was already reopened. And here's a very important question for those senators to ask. If all those State Department and NSC officials who testified in the impeachment hearings last fall knew the president was looking for an investigation, why didn't any one of them tell the president... Mr. President, you don't need to ask for it. It already has been done. The Ukrainians did it back in February and March of last year. It does not appear, anyone in the NSC, the State Department, those so-called Ukraine experts, not a one of them appears to have alerted the president to what he was looking for. Imagine if they had done their job and told the president that. We might actually have avoided this whole impeachment mess. Something to ponder for sure, right? All right, we're going to take a commercial break. Got to pay those bills, but we'll be right back. And in the next uh, segment, we are going to talk about what everyone has been talking about me. And that is these new allegations or these new interviews that Lev Parnas and a Ukrainian American businessman made on MSNBC and CNN. You've only got half the story. I'm going to give you my side of the story when we come back from the commercial break. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. I used to think new year, new me. Yeah, right. More like new year, new wrinkles, right? With every passing year, we all look older. But now, all that's changed thanks to a magic in a bottle. Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's like you turn back the clock instead of ringing in the new year with more wrinkles. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in just a few minutes. It's the easiest New Year's resolution you'll ever make. All you have to do is apply this powerful serum to your problem areas, and within 10 minutes, you're transformed. And the best part is, no surgery, no Botox, nothing dangerous. It's all natural. Simply put, those using Plexiderm are blown away by the results. Ring in 2020 with confidence, knowing that Plexiderm is going to give you a smooth, younger looking skin in just minutes. The best part is, it goes on clear, so nobody even knows you're using it. So leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles in 2019 with Plexiderm. Bye-bye bags and wrinkles. Hello to a new me. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code VOICES, that's V-O-I-C-E-S, VOICES, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an additional $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292. Let me repeat that. 1-800-685-1292. And you mentioned the code VOICES, V-O-I-C-E-S. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit tryplexiderm.com today and use the code V-O-I-C-E-S. That's at checkout, V-O-I-C-E-S. Tryplexiderm.com and remember that code, V-O-I-C-E-S. welcome back. So much to talk about. So when I started JustTheNews.com, people asked me, well, why'd you do it? Why do we need another news organization in Washington or in America? And I said over the last few years, uh, everywhere I've gone, people have asked, is there a place I can go where I don't get opinion, where I don't get speculation, where I don't get spin, where I can just get straight news, facts that I can make my mind up myself with. Um, And over the last week, there was an episode that only reaffirmed more why I did what I did, why I started this news organization. And that is uh, a former Ukrainian-American businessman that worked with me on a few stories back in uh, March, April, and May. a guy named Lev Parnas suddenly showed up on television, on MSNBC's Rachel Maddow and on the CNN shows, and he made a series of statements about me and the work he did with me as a source, as a facilitator, Uh, And here's a funny thing. Not a single one of those news organizations, CNN, MSNBC, ever bothered to call me to get my side of the story. I think that kind of validates why I started JustTheNews.com. Reporters should care about both sides of the story. So, Lev Parnas speaks. Let me help everybody set the table. In March, April, and May of last year, I wrote a handful of stories that... um, Uh, raised questions about three things. One, uh, there was a dysfunctional relationship between our U.S. Embassy in Ukraine and the prosecutors who fight corruption in Ukraine. That's a very important partnership. If it does not work, we're never going to root out corruption in Ukraine, that uh, country so close to Russia that's one of our most important allies in the region. So that's one of the storylines I developed and documented very carefully. The second storyline is, that Joe Biden and Hunter Biden created the appearance of a conflict of interest when uh, Hunter Biden went to work for a Ukraine natural gas company under investigation at the same time Joe Biden was taking over U.S.-Ukraine policy, and that that appearance of a conflict of interest became worse when in March of 2016 Joe Biden forced the firing of Ukraine's general prosecutor, the very man who was investigating his son's company, Burisma, Uh, And Joe Biden did so by threatening, in his own words, this is on videotape, by threatening to withhold withhold $1 billion of USA to Ukraine if Ukraine did not fire that prosecutor. Now, I never reported that Joe Biden fired the prosecutor specifically uh, because he wanted to stop the investigation. Some people suggested I did. I didn't. I just simply pointed out that the timing of the termination of that prosecutor under pressure from Joe Biden Coincided with the investigation of his uh, uh, of the company, Burisma Holdings that employed Joe Biden's son and not only employed him, paid his firm Hunter Biden's firm millions of dollars. That's a lot of money, especially in Ukraine. All right, so that's the table. Now, over the last few weeks, there's been a lot of fact and fiction bantied about, and one of the suggestions is well. Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, was investigating the same stuff. We had a common person between us, a guy named Lev Parnas, who provided information to Mr. Giuliani and provided it to me. And therefore, I must have engaged in a conspiracy with uh, the president's legal team to uh, publish these stories or to smear the U.S. ambassador in Russia, uh, excuse me, in Ukraine. Or uh, to create a political firestorm that's now at the heart of this impeachment inquiry. That's a really simple storyline, except it's just not true. So let me give you the real facts of what happened, and I'll explain exactly what my relationship was with Lev Parnas. First off, I began working on the Ukraine allegations, not in March, April, and May, as most reporters have assumed. I began working on this in March and April of 2018 almost two years ago, and I spent an entire year on and off, of course, because I had many other responsibilities, digging into these three issues. The uh, question of of, uh, the relationship uh, between our U.S. Embassy and the main anti-corruption fighters in Ukraine, the uh, potential conflict of interest with Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, and a third issue that came up from time to time, which was there's some isolated episodes in which Ukrainian officials appear to have tried to meddle or influence uh, the U.S. election against Donald Trump and for Hillary Clinton. All of those are factually supported. But I began that work in April of 2018, and uh, that's important because Rudy Giuliani and Lev Parnas and lots of the people that are now at the center of the impeachment scandal hadn't begun doing anything. I worked on this for a whole year. I gathered documents. I filed FOIAs. I interviewed more than 50 People on this. I went back and looked at my notebook and I interviewed more than 50 people over 14 months. Now, in fact, the three or four main stories that I published in March and April of 2019, I began drafting back in August, September, and October of 2018, way, way before I published them. That's not uncommon for me. I sometimes write long stories, I take a break from them, I come back. Um, but in this case, there was a reason for the delay, and I I can prove, by the way, that these stories were drafted uh, for many reasons. One of the things that a reporter does when they get close to writing stories uh, is they seek out fair comment, or at least they should have. In my case, people weren't calling me for fair comment recently, but uh, you go and you reach out to the sources affected by the story, and you get their side of the story. We call fair comment. Um, I did that for most of the stories that I published in March and April of 2019, way back in October 2018, I was reaching out for Fair Comment. I had these things drafted. They were sitting on my screen. They were sitting in draft mode. Um, now, there's a reason I didn't publish back then. I did not feel I had all the interviews I needed to make the uh, factual case that I was trying to make. And that was very important. Um, I had all the documents I needed. I had many of the interviews I needed. I had many people involved with Ukraine who were talking on background. Uh, It's a fancy journalism term means anonymously, meaning they would give me quotes, but they wouldn't lend their name to it. And I didn't feel good about writing about a country like Ukraine where corruption is endemic when, um, uh, when people were talking anonymously. So I held out and I pressed and I persevered for months more trying to get people to go on the record. Hey, if you're going to make an allegation or you're going to raise a concern at least have the courage to go on the record and say it. <laughs> More people in Washington should try this. It's actually uh, therapeutic if you do it. Uh, so I set the stories aside for a while because I wasn't making progress. I uh, In early January and February, I did get some people on the record. I was excited. There had been new developments in the case uh, over the last few weeks at that time. In December, a court ruled that some of the Ukrainian officials had wrongly intervened in the 2020 election. That was a Ukrainian court First time the Ukrainian government ever sounded off on that issue. I had made progress at the embassy uh, and I'd made progress with some sources. And so in late February, I had a couple of the stories drafted up. And as I often do on sensitive stories, I sent them over to my lawyers to take a look at. And uh, one of those lawyers are two people named Joe DeGenova and Victoria Tensing. They've helped me uh, with book deals and H.R. issues and libel review. Uh, And I sent it over to him. I said, Joe, Vicky, um, I I think these stories are pretty solid, but I'm still not sure I want to pull the trigger on them. I'm not sure I want to publish yet because I can't get certain people on the record. What do you think? So as good lawyers do, they took a look at it and they came back with some good advice, which is if I were you, John, your instincts, right? Hold off. Don't publish yet. Let's try to get those on the record interviews that you've been trying. Don't don't stop persevering. Now, I was lucky. It turns out. Joe and Victoria have a lot of relationships in Ukraine. Uh, They were doing business there, and they had a fella that they thought could help me. His name was Lev Parnas. He's a Ukrainian-American businessman, uh, been in the Republican circles for a long time. So Joe and Victoria decided to set up a lunch where I could meet Lev Parnas and tell him what I was struggling with and see if he could help me out. Now, that happened, and we got together. And I got to meet Lev, he gave me his bona fides, Uh, he told me who he knew, and I told him what I was looking for. I was looking to interview, on the record, on camera, so Americans can look people in the eye and see them, a couple of the prosecutors in the Ukraine General Prosecutor's Office who were deeply involved in these issues, whether it was uh, with the U.S. Embassy or with uh, Uh, interference in the U.S. election. I wanted to get to the people on the front lines, essentially the attorney general of Ukraine, a guy named Yuri Lysenko, and some of his career prosecutors. So when we get back from the break, I'm going to tell you what happened after Lev and I got together and what he actually did for me and what he didn't do for me. All right, stay tuned. We'll be right back from the break.
1: 2020 a new year. It's the perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. But finding qualified candidates can be challenging. ZipRecruiter.com begin makes it easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes and finds people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
0: All right, welcome back. The Lev Parnas story continues. All right, so when we last were talking, I told you about the lunch I had with Lev Parnas that my attorneys, Joe and Victoria, set up. And um, this has been made to sound like it was some scurrilous, scandalous smear job operation in which Rudy Giuliani and I and others uh, participated to try to get rid of an ambassador or create a scandal where none was. That's, that's the allegation that's out there. I'd like to beg to differ. So when I got to know Lev, I, you know, the first thing you do when you're using someone as a source or a facilitator in this case, cause he really wasn't giving me any firsthand information. Lev was never going to be quoted and never was quoted in any of my stories, but he was helping me get to people that did know the real story, like the prosecutors. Uh, Lev told me he had a relationship with Rudy Giuliani. At some point early on when I did a few of the interviews that Lev helped arrange, I found out that Rudy Giuliani uh, was researching some of the same issues I was. Some were different. And I asked, hey, could you reach out to Rudy and see if he could help me on this? Uh, There's nothing wrong with that. It's good for a reporter to have as a source, potentially, um, the president's uh, own uh, personal attorney, but when I got the chance to meet with Rudy in late March, which, by the way, had already published a couple of my stories already, uh, Mayor Giuliani told me he wasn't ready to share his Ukraine research with me. That he was thinking of giving it to the FBI or the State Department, and that he'd keep me in the loop. Uh, and that, um, uh, but it was not time for me to get any information. So one of the bogus narratives that are out there is that Rudy Giuliani helped seed my stories, that I conspired with him, uh, that he gave me information. Now, by the way, it would be nothing wrong if Rudy Giuliani shared information with me or I accepted information from Rudy Giuliani and then checked it out to make sure it was factual before I uh, published. But in this case, it turns out while I tried to get Rudy Giuliani to help me, he wasn't ready yet. So I published my stories based on what I had. In fact, Rudy Giuliani didn't give me his files to look at until the end of May, right around Memorial Day. By that time, all the stories that are in controversy today in the impeachment trial that I had written it for The Hill were already published. That's when Rudy gave me his stuff, after I had already done my work. So take that fiction, and let's compare it against the facts. The fiction is Rudy Giuliani seeded my stories. The fact is Rudy gave me his stuff after I published my stories. Now I tried to get it from him early, but it didn't work out for me. So what? how That I get to the point of feeling comfortable to publishing my stories? Well, the answer is simple. I finally got the Ukrainian officials on the record who I had been talking to or or knew their stories on background from other officials. Uh, I didn't want to publish anonymously, and so I got uh, Lusenko, the attorney general of uh, Ukraine, essentially, we call him the prosecutor general there, and two of his deputies that were on the front lines of this investigation to speak on the record. At that point... I had documents, I had uh, on-the-record interviews, I had timelines, I had FOIAs, and uh, I felt like the missing part of my story was ready, and so I published a series of stories. Now, one of those stories uh, was the Joe Biden story, uh, which everybody's well aware of, that Joe Biden tried to fire or force the firing of a prosecutor. who At the time, that prosecutor's team was overseeing an investigation into his son's company, But the one that has gotten the most controversy and the one that I've taken a lot of criticism for is an article, which, by the way, I had drafted back in October of 2019 before I ever met Lev Parnas, that raised questions about the relationship between the U.S. Embassy, its ambassador, Marie Marie Yovanovitch, and the prosecutors in um, Ukraine. Now, this is a very important relationship. There are three entities in Ukraine that are key to fighting the endemic corruption that has been in that Soviet Republic. The first is NABU, an anti-corruption organization that Joe Biden created. The second is the prosecutor general's office, the traditional attorney general's office. And the third is the U S embassy that provides a lot of anti-corruption funding and guidance and direction. And my story talked about the friction, tension, the anger That existed between uh, the prosecutor's office and the U.S. Embassy, which began, it appears, in 2016 when the Ukraine General Prosecutor's Office was trying to investigate a group called ANTAC, Anti-Corruption Action Center of Ukraine. It's an NGO, a nonprofit. It's funded in part by George Soros, the liberal mega-donor, and the U.S. Embassy. And its job is to try to root out corruption or to bring public awareness to the efforts to fight corruption in Ukraine. So the U.S. government and George Soros are jointly funding this group. Ukraine prosecutors want to investigate it because they have questions about the way the group's spending its money. And they get a letter from the U.S. Embassy saying, back off, guys. Don't look at the money. We're confident the U.S. money has been spent well. Well, the Ukraine prosecutors didn't like that. They felt it was their job to investigate Ukrainian crimes, not the U.S. Embassy's job to tell them who and what. And so the friction began, and that friction developed over several years to the point where there was a dysfunctional relationship between the embassy and uh, the ambassador and Uh, the general prosecutor's office. Now, uh, I've been accused of smearing Marie Ivanovich, writing a story that was unfair to her or inaccurate. Well, every story and every fact in the story that I wrote is documented. You can click on the Hill story, and read every fact yourself. Lusenko said what he said, but unlike someone who would smear the ambassador, I called the State Department and asked for comment. Now, one of the provocative things that Lusenko said was when he met with Yovanovitch the first time, she gave him a do not prosecute list, meaning people that she did not want to see prosecuted. Now, I called the State Department. I waited, in fact, several days after I interviewed Lusenko to get the State Department's reaction to that. Now, if I was going to smear the pro- uh, the ambassador, would I have done that? Why not just go and lead with what the the ambassador or the uh, prosecutor said and? And uh, a real smear job would have been not getting the side of the State Department, just the opposite. I spent days working with the State Department to get their side of their story. And their side of the story was a little different, but also corroborative of what Lusenko said. They said it was a fiction that there was a handwritten list given to Lusenko at the meeting. But they did acknowledge that over the course of 2016, on multiple occasions, the embassy told Ukraine prosecutors there were people... They did not want to see prosecuted that the prosecutors in Ukraine were thinking about investigating. Most of them were anti-corruption activists, people like ANTAC or uh, the parliamentary member Sergei Leshenko, another guy I interviewed in this story, uh, or a journalist named Shabanin, who was an anti-corruption crusading journalist. Now, the State Department said the reason they were applying this pressure was they didn't feel these people deserved to be prosecuted, that it was retribution. Ukrainian prosecutors claimed They had good reason, particularly financial records that gave them reason to investigate. But the fact is, the State Department acknowledged there was some pressure applied, maybe not in the exact same way that Lusenko described it, but uh, I got both sides of the story. And um, I want to point out some language that I had in this story because it doesn't get any credit in the media. It's not even mentioned. Here's what I wrote, quote, Unlike the breathless start to the Russia collusion allegations in which politicians and news media alike declared a Watergate sized crisis before the evidence was fully investigated. The Ukraine revelations deserve to be investigated before being accepted. Does that sound like a guy trying to smear the ambassador? Heck no. It sounds like a reporter laying out the facts, providing the context. And here's a context paragraph after all, Ukraine is dogged by rampant corruption. It is a frequent target of Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin's dirty tricks, and it's a country that just last year faked a journalist's death for one day reportedly to thwart an assassination plot. But when the prosecutor makes allegations like this, it's a sign that something's wrong, and that's why I wrote the story. I gave my readers all the context, the allegations of corruption swirling around, the the unique circus-like environment that Ukraine provides. But I wasn't involved in a smear job. I was involved in highlighting a factual dispute between two very important players in the fight against corruption and allowing the readers to make up their own mind. And I ended my column which by saying this is something that ought to be investigated further. We don't know enough yet, but there are some red flag warnings here. Now, over the course of the next few months, Lev Parnas occasionally would reach out to me, or I would reach out to him if he knew someone else that could talk to me. Uh, he ultimately helped secure four interviews for me between uh march and may and uh in each instance when when i got the interview lined up through Lev, i would go through the official press channel the ukrainian government press office for that agency make sure everything was copacetic making sure that this facilitator on the ground wasn't doing thing, anything untoward and then i would do the interview then i would do the fair comment that i'd put the video up of the interview for everybody to see it was transparent it was on the record. It involved reporting that had started a year before I ever met Lev Parnas. Now, there are a few things that Lev has said, and I found Lev Parnas to be credible. He worked hard. He uh, was professional. Uh, he told me what he did know. He told me what he didn't know. Uh, but he wasn't perfect, and that's why journalists have multiple sources. So when I'll give you one example of where Lev Parnas uh, made a boo-boo, and, and it was only my reporting that stopped it from becoming public. Back in May, I think it was, May or June, he thought he could get me an interview with the head of Burisma, the owner of Burisma. It was only going to be an email interview because the man didn't speak English. So he asked me to submit written questions, and he claimed he put them into the channel. Now, what Lev Parnas didn't know is I had my own sources on this that could check to make sure what he was saying was true. So Lev Parnas put the questions into this guy, uh, he thought, and the questions came back in answers over several days later. And I looked at them, and I knew they were inaccurate because I had had a lot of dealings with people around Burisma, and I just did not believe the answers had come in from Burisma's owners. So I made Lev Parnas go back and double-check, saying, hey, I don't think these are really the written answers of the guy, Mr. Zolchevsky. Can you go back and check? And sure as heck, he went back and checked and found out he had been duped or fooled, that these really weren't Mr. Zolchevsky's answers. And that's what a good journalist does. He checks even when his own facilitator is doing something, is it accurate? So I killed those questions and those answers. I never used them because that's what reporters do. That's part of the reporting process. Now, there's another thing he said recently, as um, he has clearly become soured on President Trump. He said that uh, I facilitated his communications with an oligarch by the name of uh, Dmitry Furtaş. This is an oligarch that uh, has been indicted by the United States government, but there's a lot of controversy about it. Uh, Furtash's lawyers have brought up in an Austrian court questions of misconduct by U.S. prosecutors in six years. Uh, Dmitry Furtash has not been extradited to the United States because the Austrians, who own him, have possession of him right now. Uh, are willing to let him come to the United States until these very serious legal issues are resolved. That's unusual. Extraditions happen all the time. The fact that the Austrians have blocked it for so long is an interesting news story. So I was pursuing that because some of the same embassy characters that I had worked with or had focused on in other stories were involved in the Dmitry Furtash case. And for months I was working with a Democratic lawyer named Lanny Davis, well-known, in Washington, a Democrat. He was representing Furtash. He felt strongly his client was wrongly accused. And uh, Lanny and I had set up the potential to interview Mr. Furtash in the late spring or early summer. And unfortunately, due to circumstances, including an unfavorable court ruling that Mr. Firtash, that went against Mr. Furtash, the interview got canceled. It happens. happens all the time in journalism. But uh, I want to keep persisting. So I went back to my occasional fixer my occasional facilitator on the ground Lev Parnas who had so far proven pretty pretty good at getting interviews you know the Burisma interview aside he had done a good job lining up I said do you know anyone in Firtash's circle who might be able to get this interview back on track and uh, he tried he didn't get it but he tried but that's what the nature was Uh, I gave him a document that I specifically wanted to question Mr. Furtash about. It was a public document, nothing untoward about it, but it was going to be the focus of my interview, whether Le- Lev Parnas or Landy Davis or anyone else set it up, and Lev tried to get the interview going. He was unable to do so. But all of this has been made to be scandalous and made to look untoward, unsavory. This is what reporters do every day. We struggle every day to get people on the record, to get facts right, We use facilitators and sources and intermediaries all the time. The only question, the only question that matters at the end of the day is not who did I talk to, who facilitated what. The question is, was everything I reported in these Ukraine stories accurate? I've gone through it. My lawyers have gone through it since this controversy erupted. And I can tell you that we have not found a single factual error in anything that I've reported on Ukraine. In fact, a lot of good sourcing, a lot of good double and triple sourcing, and more importantly, I had all the caveats, like those I just read you from my story. I warned readers, Ukraine's that c- corruption issues. I warn readers that there was more to be found out in these stories, but that there was an important issue here to look at. None of that is getting reported accurately by the media today, and so thank you for giving me the time today here at John Solomon Reports to lay out this part of the story, to tell you what really went on, to demystify and to be transparent about my relationship with Lev Parnas, how I wrote the stories. What went on between Lev and I is what goes on between reporters every day. And in fact, Lev Parnas would tell me often that there were many other reporters he talked with or talked to or tried to help, some who wrote stories on Ukraine after my stories. So, uh, again, Lev Parnas has been indicted now uh, on an unrelated case involving campaign finance violations. That's something he has to answer for. He used to be, at least by his own statements, a supporter of President Trump. He seems to have turned against President Trump. But at the end of the day, what went on between him and I, what went on in these stories was the normal course of journalism where a reporter tries to get things on the record, not anonymously, holds things, gets fair comment, gets context, gives the reader the warnings they need to know about when you're writing about Ukraine. And I hope that you take that into account. Those are facts that are not... Often mentioned in the media today, but I hope they give you a better sense of what I was trying to do. Uh, At the end of the day, the Ukraine story is about a dysfunctional relationship where we had a vice president's son cashing in on a Ukraine gas company under investigation while his father oversaw U.S. Ukraine policy. We had an embassy that had a dysfunctional relationship with the very entities that were supposed to fight corruption and spend U.S. aid on fighting corruption, and that dysfunction can't be good for the American taxpayer. And finally, we had a, we didn't talk much about it today, but we've had a few episodes, not widespread, not as widespread as Russia, but a few episodes in which Ukraine officials tried to meddle in the U.S. election by writing op-eds or uh, meeting with a DNC operative who was looking for dirt on Donald Trump, uh, and those things ought to be investigated. That's why I wrote the columns I did in March, April, and May. Nothing nefarious, no political motive, wasn't trying to help or hurt Donald Trump, wasn't trying to help or hurt Joe Biden. I was trying to give the American public facts so they could make up their own mind about these very important issues, which now are at the heart of the impeachment trial. So that's my story for today. That's John Solomon Reports, the very first edition. I can't thank you enough for listening. Please share this with your friends. Uh, Have them subscribe if they're interested. John Solomon reports on iTunes, on Stitcher, on all the places where you like to listen to podcasts and spread the word. In my next podcast, I'm hoping to talk to one of the jurors in the impeachment trial, a senator, who has a very unique perspective on Ukraine, President Trump, and on this upcoming impeachment trial that's just beginning here in Washington. So stay tuned. Thanks again. Have a good day. We'll be back in touch soon.